0: The IMG Roadmap is the only podcast dedicated to coaching international medical graduates and success blueprints for this unique pathway. I am Dr. Nina Loom, your host, a previous IMG turned hospital medicine physician, healthcare administrator, speaker, and coach. I empower, encourage, and equip you with actionable steps that you can take towards the residency position of your dreams. Hey guys, welcome to another episode of the IMG Roadmap Podcast. Today's guest is probably going to be the first neurology resident to come on the podcast. So I'm really excited to welcome Dr. Jessica DeRuz. Welcome on the podcast, Doc. How are you? I'm doing well. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited. Well, it's my pleasure to have you. So can you tell us a little bit about yourself?
1: Yeah, for sure. So my name is Jessica Daris. I am originally from Cleveland, Ohio. I grew up there into high school there. My parents are still there. I attended Calvin College, which is now Calvin University in Grand Rapids, Michigan. I graduated in 2012, which feels like forever ago. And after grad school, I went to Case Western Reserve University for a master's degree in medical physiology and then went to St. George's University in the Caribbean for medical school. And now I am a neurology resident at University of Missouri, Kansas City. Well, that's pretty
0: awesome. Congratulations on the journey. It, it's still ongoing, but you've made it so far along. And mm-hmm. people listening usually want to know, hey, what does it take to become a uh, neurology resident, especially as a graduate of a foreign medical school? So can you touch a little bit on that?
1: Yeah, for sure. I mean, my interest in neurology, I guess, is kind of where it starts. And I think that you know not everyone i guess easily becomes interested in neurology because IMGs don't always get the opportunity to actually do a core in neurology which a lot of US medical graduates actually have to complete a core rotation in neuro and so i started my interest in undergrad with with research that i conducted and then it kind of persisted in grad school where i was able to do rotations at case western six weeks as like a observer, they really couldn't contribute a whole lot to the clinical decision making. And then I wanted to go into medical school, like open minded, but kind of felt myself always gravitating towards neurology. And I mean, along the way, I also made connections with very important people, I think, in the world of neurology, that were very influential and supportive and gave me a lot of great guidance. Because I mean, most IMGs, you know, go for like internal medicine or FM, like specialties aren't as common, I guess, like the specialty residencies. So I didn't really get any like guidance from my school as far as how to go about it. I knew that I wanted it and I completed an elective my fourth year and my preceptor was amazing, gave me a lot of great guidance as well. And then when it came time for applications, I actually reached out to a physician that I know in the Bronx. He's a cardiologist, but he is friends with a neurologist who gave me further guidance as far as my applications go and how to like kind of set myself up for success. So it's kind of a haphazard tale of how I got there, Um, but it was with a lot of help from people, other physicians and other people in
0: the world of neurology. So Yes, absolutely. So, I mean, really kind of to summarize what I'm hearing is, you know, for most international medical graduates, especially those that go to Caribbean schools, there's not a whole lot of exposure to the specialty to start with. And so, therefore, in your case, you really had those kind of mentors and guides to allow you to be exposed to the specialty, and then that sort of compounded to how you came up with a desire to be a neurologist. I mean, that's what I kind of got from it. Is that
1: accurate? Yeah, I would say so. Just because a lot of the people that actually were super helpful in the process were people that I knew like before medical school that I had kept in contact. But I mean, I think really with any specialty, like any chance that you have to network with people in an area that you want to pursue is important and keeping in contact with those people over the years is important because some of the people that helped me i have known for like 15 years or like six years that like before I was even in medical school, I expressed an interest in neurology and they like kind of stuck with me through the process.
0: Yeah. And were these people, like you mentioned, just to emphasize, was it important that they were neurologists themselves as opposed to, would you recommend for just what are your thoughts on getting a mentor in another specialty when you're interested in something else?
1: I mean, honestly, so my like original mentor, you know, who set me up with somebody in neurology was a cardio he's cardiology. And I met him when I was 15. But because of the connections that he had, you know, he put me in contact with people that I would have not have been able to meet otherwise. Cause I'm the first doctor in my family. So we don't really have like just ties to people like that, you know?
0: Right. And that's the story for, you know, several other IMGs is not having, you know, not coming from a family of doctors and not having that resume that makes you an easy pick, so to speak. So Mm -hmm. that's one of the things we appreciate having guests like you on the podcast, because you can tell us sort of what worked for you and how we can learn from it moving forward for those that are still in the process of maybe having an interest in the specialty and want to be where you're at. So let's talk academics. Let's talk about the academic requirements to match into neurology. Can you touch on maybe USMLE performance and what really makes a competitive uh, neurology application?
1: Yeah, so I am actually kind of an outlier with certain scores with step one. Um, I did not do well on step one. I've never been a straight A student. I've never like just been good at academics. But I mean, with any specialty, right? The higher step scores you get, the better. Like, it's just going to make your life a little easier. Um, Neurology, I think, usually prefer like step one to twenties. Like in that in that realm, is like okay. Like you're comfy. I personally had a step one of 197, which is pretty low. I mean, anyone who gets anything below a 200 kind of feels like you know their life is over, and that's and that's tough because like you know when you see that score you think that the specialty that you want is no longer within reach but i mean i'm i guess living proof to say that that's not the case it's just that you have to apply smart but also the big thing that changed for me especially with step studying and like my step 2 is i had to improve significantly from my step 1 to my from my step 1 to my step 2 and i did i improved by 30 points so i had a 227 on my step two exam. So I can give good examples of what not to do for step one studying, which is what I did. I mean, I got a tutor, and that didn't really work for me, because I think everyone studies differently. And I find that sometimes with tutors, they can be helpful, but usually they kind of guide you based on what worked for them. And I don't always think that's helpful. And even when people ask for studying tips, you know, I just say, here's what I did, but you have to find your rhythm. So big thing for me was the questions. So I hate doing practice questions because I hate being wrong. <laughs> I'm sure most people in the world of medicine can relate that they don't like to get a lot of questions wrong in a row. But getting outside of that comfort zone was huge for me, at least in order to improve in my step score. Practice, practice, practice is really the best advice that i could give for people who are who are studying for exams and not only just like step exams and board exams for like your exams in school as well practicing questions getting used to what questions ask that way you can pick out patterns and and study based on that keeping in mind though obviously that answering questions like that isn't going to make you a better doctor it's just going to help you with your test taking and not being a great test taker also isn't going to correlate to whether or not you're going to be a good physician, which I think people also kind of need to keep in mind.
0: Right. Those are two separate entities. I mean, the best test takers do not always equate to the best doctors. The worst test takers do not always equate to the best doctors either. But at the end of the day, it's very important to keep in mind because I see it all the time, you know? Mm
1: -hmm. Um,
0: So yeah. So talking about, let's get back into maybe a little bit more about the preparation phase. So Beyond, you've told us a little bit about the score range that's considered desirable, but here you are with a story that maybe may not have been considered desirable based on your score, but you're Mm -hmm. saying, hey, you know, there's a lot more that makes a good doctor besides that. But, Mm -hmm. you know, sometimes for a podcast like this, we need a little bit more objective standards to go by. So maybe tell Mm -hmm. us a little bit more about, you know, the number of letters that you got or you recommend that are advisable for someone interested in neurology to obtain from a neurologist because for example if if as a Caribbean student, I didn't have the opportunity to have a core in neuro, mm-hmm. well, how can I plan my years, whether it's my third and fourth year, so that I can get some experience in neurology to be exposed and then for letters, you know what is what is the status quo for the applicants that are seeking neurology positions?
1: Yeah, so I think that's a great question just because. Caribbean students, you can start in August or January. So people are on very different schedules. So the people who usually start in January have a lot more time to complete electives earlier for like, you know, that particular application cycle, whereas I did not. So I wasn't able to complete my actual elective until about September. So actually, when I submitted my application, I didn't even have a letter of recommendation for neurology, which I do not recommend. I mean, you can do it. It's fine. It's just a lot more stressful. But if you can complete an elective, obviously, before your applications are due, you should definitely have a letter of recommendation from neurology. I had one, but it was a very strong letter. But my other letters that I used were like psych, because I feel, you know, there's, you have to do parts of psych in your neurology residency. And I think that that was an important letter of recommendation. But I also chose letters of recommendation that spoke to who I was as, as a who I would be as a clinician. I think honestly, most programs require about four, and you can only upload four, I think, per program on ERAS. And you should obviously, yeah, like I said, definitely have one from neurology, at least one. If you do apply without a letter, like I did, then you should definitely contact program directors and let them know why you don't have a letter. But that one is going to be coming. So that was advice that I actually got from a neurology physician before I applied because I was like, well, what do I do? I don't have a letter. Like, am I going to be okay? He said, yeah, it's fine. Just say, hey, like, here's what's going on. This is my scheduling. I am having like my elective at this and such a time and I will be getting a letter and I will update you. And I mean, it didn't prevent me from being invited for interview just because I didn't have a specific neurology letter. So." letters are important. I think also showing an interest, obviously, in your personal statement is going to be important. If you can only complete like one elective, I don't think it's the end of the world. If you can do more at maybe multiple hospitals, that would be helpful. I only had the opportunity to do mine at like one particular place in Miami because they didn't have a whole lot of sites that, you know, had neurology as an elective. So definitely planning accordingly so you have your your done on time and your letter done like and completed on time for your applications will make your life a little less stressful that's for sure
0: right thanks for those recommendations because i i agree with them i think a lot of times especially this time of the year you know we're going to be recording this we are recording this in september it may air sometime later on but whenever you listen to this you know typically in September, I get a rush of emails, calls, text messages, you know, from IMGs trying to figure out what to present to programs. And Mm -hmm. I really like that I do this podcast because when you listen to this, anyone listening, this is your cue to take action. It's your cue to start to determine, hey, do I need to start really looking for one elective in this specialty because I'm interested in it? And the earlier you start planning, the better it is for just about anything in life.
1: Yeah, definitely.
0: Yeah. So, definitely, if you start working on such now, then September of the year you're willing to apply, you're not confused and dumbfounded as to how to get an LOR or, you know, how do I really prove that I'm interested in the specialty versus not? Because, mm-hmm. yes, some people do match with exceptions, right? A lot mm-hmm. of people can make it in with not the perfect application that everybody talks about, but mm-hmm. having that. Competitive application goes a long way, especially if you have other things in your portfolio. Maybe you don't have strong mentors or you don't have, you know, any prior experience in the U.S. And so Mm -hmm. but you have good scores. So you really want to make sure that you're optimizing every portion that's available to you. And that could end up being, you know, getting at least one letter from a neurologist, if that's a specialty you're going to apply into. If you can get Mm -hmm. two, even better of course, having a personal statement that speaks to why you chose the specialty and really proving that you have clinical interest in it one way or the other. I think those things do go a long way, especially for people who don't have other ways for the application to speak on their behalf. Mm -hmm. So, you know, just some further advice, you know, I guess, or requests from you. Another thing is, you know, a lot of i just feel like neuro is so far fetched. Maybe they don't stand a chance. What, What are your thoughts on that?
1: I think that's so false. I mean, I feel like neuro actually tends to be pretty IMG friendly. And I kind of think that maybe people have a misconception of what neurology actually is sometimes, you know, it is a four-year residency with the first year being, you know, internal medicine. And I don't know, I just, I think, like I said, people don't really understand what neuro actually entails. And I think that's why an elective is an important part of making that decision to actually see, hey, do I like this? But I mean, we have, at least in my program, tons of IMGs in the neurology residency. I honestly, I don't know the statistics off the top of my head, but I just, I think that it is a pretty IMG friendly residency specialty.
0: And honestly, it is because when you look at the top 10 specialties for 2020 for IMGs, neurology was actually the top five, I believe, for non-US IMGs was actually on that list of course, lower than I am and maybe FM, but uh, still impedes, but still definitely a specialty that if you are interested in it, you should pursue it. Doesn't mean that if you hear it's top 10, you should just go ahead and apply because you think you have a chance. But if it's something you're interested in, do not shy away from it. Really, that's the message I'm trying to get out.
1: Yeah, definitely. Um, I think that there's just like a lot less Like, there's fewer neuro programs, too, obviously, compared to internal medicine. So I think maybe that might be a part of, like, the misconception of it not being IMG-friendly just because there's, like, I think 165 programs total or something like that in the United States. So there's not a lot.
0: Right, right. So, yeah, thanks for that data. I didn't know that. But definitely another thing I usually talk about sometimes is, you know, people think IM is easy to get into, but the truth is just that there's, like, so many more slots for it, mm-hmm. right? So it, it's really not a matter of even if they want it to be super more competitive, they just have more availability than some of the other ones or the specialty. So that's that it's really a, a numbers game as well. Some other questions that I have, which I know are going to come up, is you know, some some people listening right now maybe are in a Caribbean school, they didn't have any prior exposure with neuro, so they don't really know, right? Can you tell us a little bit about? the parts of neurology that you like and maybe some of the practice opportunities that exist after training and a little bit more about what the training is like and maybe even some fellowship options and what the life of a neurologist, you know, that appealed to you, what was that and what did that look like? What does that Yeah, look- sure.
1: So my actual knowledge of neurology was very backwards in that my first exposure to like the human brain was during the research that I did in undergrad. So it was gross specimen, like neuropathology. So slicing brain up, looking at it, I had no clue what I was looking at. I was like, it's awesome. Like, this is, you know, it's a brain, like, it's so cool. And then from there, I learned imaging with my rotations that I did in grad school and seeing clinical, like, picture of, like, what a stroke looks like in someone who's, like, actually suffering a stroke right now and like locked in syndrome. So even though again I didn't understand the anatomy fully, I knew okay, if you have something going on here, this is what you're probably going to see. And then I actually learned the neuroanatomy in medical school. So it was very backwards, but I think it's to me it's like a puzzle like it makes sense to me at least because you know, you have a presentation of something, say like left upper extremity weakness or something and you can kind of trace it back to where it goes in the central nervous system. When it comes to the world of neurology, you're dealing with people who have strokes, who have epilepsy, who have motor neuron diseases like multiple sclerosis, NMO, ALS, things of that nature, movement disorders, Parkinson's disease. You know, there's it's a growing field, which is also kind of why it's so it was so enticing to me, because, yeah, we know stuff about the brain. Right. We know like kind of how it works, but at the same time, there's a lot that we don't understand about the human brain and so it's a growing field still even though it's a very old field that's another reason like I said why why it's so enticing to me and actually this is I'm still learning a lot about it honestly because there are certain like fellowships that I didn't even know were a thing until like recently keeping in mind also that neurology tends to be a consult service so You're not always the primary in the hospital, but like you can also do clinics. So obviously you have inpatient and outpatient, but consult service in the hospital, at least I've only done about a month of neuro in my intern year. And at that particular hospital, you were in at eight out by four, which is not terrible hours. Your lists don't tend to be super, super long, like as far as how many patients you're seeing. And again, it depends on the hospital. Some are like busier than others, but it's a pretty I think reasonable lifestyle. But again, it kind of depends on what you want to do with it. If you want to stay in the hospital versus going into private practice where your life might be a little more hectic. I mean, my electives, I worked at a a clinic and the neurologist that I worked with worked crazy hours all the time. So I think it kind of depends on what you want to do and how you want to live your life in the world of neurology. As far as opportunities afterwards, like fellowships, You can work in stroke, so you can do vascular. You can do headache, movement disorders, neurophysiology, which is like EEGs for epilepsy. You can do epilepsy. You can work with neuromuscular diseases. You can work with a huge area that's like growing and like really up and coming is like immunotherapy for neurology. So people who have, you know, MS, and other demyelinating diseases there's like a booming field of like immunotherapy and new treatments for multiple sclerosis and nmo and other just i mean the diseases are very sad but it's really cool that you can actually treat people now because people always used to say like oh neurology you don't really treat anything you just kind of have to deal with the consequences of something that happens but now it's not really the case like there are more treatments to at least prolong the life of people who are like suffering from very debilitating diseases. One particular area that I'm really interested in is sports neurology, which is a newer area. There's only like eight fellowships currently. And this is working with people who have had traumatic brain injuries, you know, concussions, things of that nature, because that's more of a controversial field of neurology. But I find that particular area very fascinating. And I think next to internal medicine, neurology actually has like a very broad spectrum of fellowships that you can pursue after a neurology residency, or you can just be a general neurologist and you can be a neurohospitalist as well. Right. it's a lot.
0: Yeah. There are tons of options. And, um, and I like that we have you on here to share that because I think ignorance sometimes just prevents imgs from pursuing neuro because whether it's Mm -hmm. that they don't really know what what's out there i mean you can't pursue something you don't know anything about right and Mm -hmm. then second if if the knowledge that's out there is very limited then there's really no way to bring or shed more light to to the specialty and so that's one Mm -hmm. of the reasons i appreciate having you on because it's always good to hear from the horse's mouth so to speak so yeah before we let you go you know this podcast is all about empowering encouraging imgs can you tell us maybe about some challenges that you dealt with, because you did mention before having a low step one score. Usually that is one of the things that I get a lot of questions about from IMGs. I personally did not have a high step one score either. My score, Mm -hmm. I think, was like a 198 back in the day. Mm -hmm. And I remember feeling very devastated when I got that. And my way to compensate was more, okay, I'm gonna study real hard for step two CK and score really high. And then, you know, I'm going to try to get a lot of recommendation from like a family medicine director or something like that in order to just do some more in order to make the application slightly more competitive. But, you know, every, the story varies from person to person. Everybody has a different trajectory. Some people, it didn't hurt them as much. Some it did. Can you just tell us about some challenges that you experienced and maybe how you overcame them? This whole
1: journey has been such an uphill battle for me since day one, honestly, like college, I failed chemistry, you know, it was my first F in my life. And I thought, again, my life was over. And I've been told no, since the very beginning that, you know, this is not the path for you, you're not going to do well. And like, that was my first advisor in in undergrad. And I was like, I'm not going to take that as an answer. Like, that's, I don't think no is is productive. No, but like, give me an option, you know? And so I got a new advisor and he's the one who told me about master's post-bac programs. Um, so if I didn't switch advisors, I would have never known about those programs. I would have never applied to Case Western. i gotten a master's and like actually improved my study skills. And even then I actually got rejected from Case Western originally because I had too many C's on my transcript. And I went to the program director there and basically begged for a position. I was like, I understand you're worried, but I can do this. Like, let me prove it to you. I will put the work in. I will do whatever you need me to do in order to be accepted into this program. So I was accepted on conditional acceptance. And then I busted my butt that semester, got the grades I needed to be fully accepted for the next semester. My advisors there were like, I don't know if you should apply this year for medical school. One was like, you're probably not going to make it. And the other one was like, yeah, maybe, maybe you will. And I applied anyways. I didn't get into any medical schools in the United States. I applied to like, I think, 25 MD schools and 15 DOs. They didn't get any interviews or anything like that. But someone recommended to me Caribbean schools. So again, reaching out and asking for help was a big thing because I would have never known about Caribbean schools. Even in in school in Grenada, I struggled through my classes. I failed the test in my last term. I didn't think I was gonna make it off the island. (laughs) And I just kept pushing with my step one score again, like they, you know, I thought it was over, but I just kept pushing and asking for help, trying to change my habits or change whatever I was doing in order to overcome, you know, that one thing that I felt was preventing me from moving forward. And then I mean, I feel like I got into a rhythm of school and life and everything, maybe like by the time I was in my third year, but I had to, I worked hard. I mean, I had to ask for help. I think that's really the biggest thing that helped me overcome each hurdle because they felt like very big, like hurdles that were like ending my journey. And like, really, I think, you know, your journey is not over with a bad score on a test. Your journey is not over with a bad rotation or anything like that your journey is over when you quit and i think that that's the biggest thing that has at least helped me keep pushing but also asking for help because this is not a one man show this is very much a group effort a team effort you make it through with with support and help and you have to ask for that help in the process but keep persevering and keep pushing through is really <laughs> the thing that like helped me, because <laughs> I, mean, I ran into a lot of a lot of hurdles and I thought it was over multiple times. But perseverance breaks resistance, I guess.
0: That's amazing. That's such a beautiful way to put it. It's not over until you basically give up, right? And and here you are, still pushing, still chugging along, and you know, building more dreams and achieving them. I I think that sometimes we don't really see how far we've come until maybe somebody else tells us. But you know, listening to your story, I mean, I'm just like, despite all of that, here you are still still fighting and still creating your own medical success story. And I think I'm
1: hard headed, that's the problem.
0: Yeah, yeah. And I think that's what we need. You know, I think resilience, there's something to be said about resilience that I don't understand if there's any kind of genetic predilections and things like that. But I think a lot of it is is really willpower and I would say risk aversion. Like if you're willing to take the risk, you're more likely to succeed because nothing's gonna happen if you don't take a risk. Right. And like in your case, you're talking about, you know, even with your master's program, you were willing to take the risk to go into that program and talk to the director about reconsidering your application. A lot of us can get so self-conscious about things like that and literally not take the risk to ask and very much so hold ourselves back by not trying. And it just amazes me how you hear stories of people that because they took one extra step, were able to build something that would have never happened if they did not attempt to do that thing. And, mm-hmm. and then on the flip side, I may meet other students who feel so self-conscious that they would never consider doing anything like that. And I usually say, if you don't ask, you don't receive. I think that's one of the things I've learned also, is really kind of asking for what I want from people that have the authority to make a difference. Yeah, you know, I think the difference is if you ask for things that you want from people who cannot make a difference and they tell you all the ways you will never do it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but if you go to the source and people who actually have the influence, you can, that, that's a big risk. And you may hear a lot of no's, you may get rejections, you may be told to never try this again. But in my opinion, if it doesn't kill you, it only makes you stronger. I agree. Yeah, definitely a beautiful story you've shared with us tonight. We really appreciate having you on the podcast. Before we let you go, though, can you give us any final words for us to hang on to for those really bad days that come ahead? Yes. And this is something that I
1: tell myself, don't always listen to myself. And I tell patients as well, like when you get something bad, or like, if you're struggling through something, just take it a day at a time. And I mean, I know it sounds kind of hokey, but like, when a day at a time becomes too much, five minutes, five minutes at a time, you can survive five minutes, and then move on to the next five minutes, just take it in small bites.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. Definitely agree. I mean, you can only eat an elephant, like one bite at a time. Exactly. You know, you just start somewhere. But the most important thing is to start. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much, uh, Dr. Jessica. We appreciate having you on here. How can we find you on social media or other platforms? Can you tell us if we want to follow you and ask more questions? How, do you, how do Yeah, for sure.
1: First of all, thanks so much for having me on here. i was just really excited and looking forward to this all day. I really enjoyed myself. And ways that you can find me is I'm on Instagram. ProcrastinationMD is the platform that I have been using. Um, I'm, I'm easily accessible in that way. And I answer like most of my messages, actually pretty much all my messages. So yes, if anyone has questions, please feel free to send them my way. I'm more than happy to answer them.
0: All right. At ProcrastinationMD, we'll have that in the show notes as well. So you guys can follow her, interact with her and ask further questions regarding neurology residency training. Thank you so much. And we hope to have you back sometime in the future. Thank you.